So we are starting a new series today titled The Week That Changed the World. And this series, again, is our Easter season. And now we are entering into these next couple weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, to Resurrection Sunday. And so we're going to work our way through these next couple weeks and and looking at these different um, parts and traditions and aspects of the last week of Jesus' life. And this truly was a week that changed everything. The, the world was never the same after this week. And I think as we, again, we see that and, and, and see the power of that and even just the power of Jesus's life. But as we start out this series, I wanna extend a, a challenge to everyone. Right? The challenge for this series is, is, uh, is to truly let the events of this week, this last week of Jesus' life, to truly let them change your life. Because the truth is this Easter season could just come and go. It could be, just be another holiday. And I think especially in, in the current context of our culture is it could just get ignored even. But the, 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 again, the challenge of this and what I want to challenge all of us is to say, how can this week, how can these, these traditions, this celebration of this holiday, how can it truly affect your life and your faith journey? Right? Because God's Life, Jesus' life is supposed to change us. And the question is, will it, will it change you this year? Even as we go, again, this familiar story, right? This familiar holiday. Will it mean more than just these traditions of candy and clothes and spring? You know, but will it truly affect your faith and your life and your walk with Christ? I really hope that it will. They said, we're going to go through these different aspects of this final week of Jesus' life. And we're starting today with the triumphal entry. This was, you know, the, again, the, the event that, that brought in, uh, in, this, this, in this holy week. So we're going to start there. And now, um, again, this, the triumphal entry is traditionally celebrated on Palm Sunday. And so actually next Sunday is Palm Sunday. But we're starting here because we have, you know, some more uh, events to go through. So actually on Palm Sunday, we'll be looking at the next thing, which is the Passover feast. Um, but we're going to learn about it today so that when it comes next Sunday, we know why we celebrate Palm Sunday. So the triumphal entry um, is Jesus's entry into Jerusalem on the last week of his earthly ministry. Like I said, this was the event that ushered in Holy Week. So I want to start this morning before we jump into God's word, but I just want to start with this question is why did this matter to them? Why was the triumphal entry a big deal? Why does this event have any significance at all? Right, why, I mean, why did it need to happen? I mean, people enter Jerusalem every day. In fact, Jesus entered Jerusalem, entered into the temple area, I mean, many times in his life. So what made this specific entry special? And why by this entry by Jesus specifically, why was that special? So again, we kind of start to answer this question with uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now this is an Old Testament prophecy, okay? And it says in Zechariah 9, 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. Now again, this prophecy was written, it's a part of the Old Testament, it's, it's in, that, it's in the, the minor prophets section of the Old Testament, and this prophecy was written about 480 BC. 
Now that is about 500 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Again, that's, think about that. This, this prophecy, this, this prediction of the Messiah entering the holy city was, was written 500 years before it happened. And yet there are some certain signs that are given in this prophecy to show that this, again, this is the man. This is the Messiah. This is the entry into Jerusalem and the temple area that really matters. And so there's a couple things that, that I want to point out about that are described here in this prophecy. The first one is the donkey, right? Obviously it shows that this, the riding on the donkey, the donkey's colt, this was, this was a significant thing. And now the donkey is an animal that is symbolic of humility. Okay, the donkey is an animal that's symbolic of humility. In fact, that's, I mean, that's exactly what it says in the verse, right? That, that he was not only righteous and victorious, but he was also humble. Now again, not just humility, but there's, you know, the, the other aspect of, of a peaceful ruler. Okay, there's this, this sign again of, of Davidic royalty, that he was in the sign of, or the line of, of Judah, which was the line, the the, the Israelite line that David was from. Yeah, we, we see this described in different places, but in Genesis 49.10 is where really the line of Judah is first described as it starts to go down. And again, like I said, that was the line of David. And this is also the line um, of the, you know, of fathers and sons and, and the, uh, you know, all of that. We read in scripture, we see these, these genealogies that go, you know, follow this person has gave son to this person and, they gave, and then his son was this person and through that. So we see these lines and, and this was the line that was supposed to lead to the Messiah. Okay? And so that's, um, that's very significant. This, this symbol of a donkey of humility. Now again, David was a leader that was, it was put on a pedestal in Israel's history. And again, he was their greatest ruler and, and their king. And just kind of, again, he's a man after God's own heart. Now, David was not perfect and, and we all know that, but yet he sought God and he ruled with, with uh, again, with a humble heart and attitude towards God. And, and again, that was the prophecy that, that the Messiah would come in that line. Okay, now we also see this idea of Zion, and we see, again, this, um, this, this, the people of Zion. What, again, what is that? And, and again, that is, is symbolic of the holy city of Jerusalem. Okay, again, Jerusalem was a holy city, and, and this city was established by David, right? First, that's where he set up um, his his, his kingdom center. That's where, again, his house was. That's where he, he um, ruled from. That became, the, again, the, um, the capital of, of Jerusalem. They, or Jerusalem was the capital, right, of Israel. I mean, of, of that, that entire nation. And again, it was established by David. Now, and again, and, and this is also where then the temple was built. And so Zion, the word Zion literally means fortress. They, it's, and and this, this is how, again, it was started is originally it was a fortress that was captured by David when, again, when he became king. Okay, this story is seen in 2 Samuel chapter 5. You can go and you can read it about how David went through the, the water tunnel and, and caught them by surprise and took over, again, the entire city through this fortress. Okay, now this is the first passage where we see this name Zion used in scripture. 
Now, many of you know, I traveled to the Holy Land just a couple months ago, and, and we went to this site in Jerusalem that is known as the City of David. It's where his palace was, and we literally went through the tunnel um, where the David and his men went through to, in order to, to originally conquer it. Uh, and just here's a, here's a picture of the City of David. Again, this is a part of the ruin, and you know, these are the original ruins. You can see it's kind of you know, set up there, but you can see the landscape, but this is literally where David lived. This is where his palace was. Okay, this is where he established his kingdom from. This is, again, you see these is all these surrounding areas and, and hills, and you see, again, all of these things. Now, because, um, again, Jerusalem is on a mountain. I mean, set up this whole area, and you can see how the landscape is, and, and we see through that. Now, the other significant part of Zion that's kind of described in this entire area is this threshing floor that was purchased by David where he built an altar where he saw the angel again through this plague and, and again you can go and read the backstory of that if you want to but but looking up north from here from the city of David where his his house was was he looked up and because it, it goes higher up higher onto the mountain where this threshing floor was and again we can see um Again, this, this story in a couple different places in Scripture, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Um, we see it also in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And this is where, again, uh, David describes what happened on this threshing floor. Now, here's a picture from standing again in the city of David and, and standing in this perspective. And you look up here to the back, this, this wall right here, this is the Temple Mount. Okay, so you can see how how close it was, but it was not right where David lived. It was not in the city of David where his house was. It was a little farther north and a little higher. Okay, you see that now, obviously, um, you know, this was a, the significant place. This is a place now uh, where, where David, David bought this, and this is where the temple was built. And that, that's what this, this, this wall is here. That's the temple mount. That's where, again, the temple was where Jesus um, even went into during his time. Again, the, the, the temple, though, was not built by David. It was built by Solomon. Okay? And then, again, David's son. And, and Solomon brought the, the Ark of the Covenant into the temple when it's finished. You can read that story in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Okay, now the other significant part about the landscape here okay, is, the, is the Mount of Olives. And, and that's, that's where Jesus, again, starts uh, from the Mount of Olives and ascends down into the triumphal entry path. Now, again, as we were there and just looking in this perspective, this is the city of David, like I said, Temple Mount. The Mount of Olives is right around the corner, right up here. And in fact, you see this, this next picture, you see this is me standing on top of the Mount of Olives. Okay? And so this, again, is the view that Jesus had as he ascended into the city as he, as he followed down the path. Now, we literally went from this point and we walked down the, um, the, the Palm Sunday path and walked down the hill and down into this, this valley right here and then Jesus would have gone up the other side and this area right here, this was the Golden Gate. This is where Jesus entered into the city and this is the temple area. And so he would have gone into the, to the outer courts. And again, when he clears the temple, this is where all of that happened. And when we, when we read this story, we can understand this perspective that Jesus had. But he started here on the top of Mount Olives and, and he went down into that Kidron Valley. And then he came back up and he entered into that gate. And yet this whole time, again, and we'll see in the stories we read it, that, that Jesus' heart just went out to the people and, and, and seeing the people that he, was, he knew he was going to die for, he was going to suffer for. And, and again, all of these things that broke his heart. And, and as he's ascending through this, he can literally see everything going on in the temple. 
right? As, as we realize that and, and again, see this perspective, I, I want to show this, again, this one last verse, this, this Old Testament viewpoint of, of this ascension into the city. Okay, in Psalms chapter 2, verse 6. See, and then he says, I have appointed my own king to rule in Jerusalem on my holy mountain, Zion. Now again, I use the New Century version and on this, on the outline. Uh, in the, the, the NLT version, which is what I typically read from, it, it just uses the word Jerusalem. Okay, the, the King James version and the NIV versions only use the word Zion. I, I decided to use the New Century version here because it uses both words. You see, Jerusalem and Zion. And those are kind of uh, like um, interchangeable in some ways in how they are translated. But, but yet we see here is that this entire area, whether it's the city of David, where, where city David's palace was, the whole you know, area of Jerusalem, and especially the Temple Mount, is that this entire area is sacred and holy ground. Right? And again, it's just even as I visited it just a, a few months ago and, and standing there and just seeing again, this, this area of the world is anointed by God. Right? And this again is where uh, God sent his son, sent the Messiah into this area. And this again was where he was crucified. And it's where he rose again. And there's all of these events of this, this final week of Jesus' life happened in this area. So at this time, I want to go and let's, I want to read the story again of the triumphal entry. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Again, I, I hope you have uh, your Bible with you today and, and just I'll, I'll encourage you to open with me and read along uh, as we open up to, to Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have your own Bible or don't have it with you in front of you, uh, you can just listen as I read it. But I'm going to be reading from Matthew uh, 21, starting at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 11. And so here we are, Matthew 21, starting at verse 1. This is the story of Matthew's version of the triumphal entry. Uh, Matthew 21, starting at verse 1. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. He said, go into the village over there, he said. And as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now again, we, we read this version of the triumphal entry. And I say this version because um, there are very few things that are included in all four gospels. Again, in our Bible, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They have these four different versions of Jesus' life. And, and they all kind of share a little different things about Jesus' life. They have a different focus. They came from a different author, a different lens as they, as they tell this. Now, there are some things that are included in all four gospels. And there's many that aren't. They're only maybe included in one or two of them. 
Now, the triumphal entry is something that is included in all four Gospels. And, and you see on your outline, you see here, I've given you uh, the references to all the other uh, Gospels. And so you, I encourage you to go back and read all four versions of it, because each version gives a little, a little different spin on it. It gives maybe a few little different details. In fact, you know, we know, again, again this is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. And where does that come? Because again, as we read in, in Matthew, doesn't mention palm branches. I mean, he talks about their garments and about, you know, the procession, all those kind of things. But, but they did specifically wave palm branches. And that is described in John. In John's account, in his version, is where he talks about palm branches. Now, again, why do we call it Palm Sunday in that when only one gospel mentions it? But, you know, the palm branches, again, were very significant. Now, why do the other ones not mention it? I don't know. But, again, John does in his gospel. But, again, the palm branches um, are the symbol of victory for the Jews. And so, again, this was the idea of, uh, of the Messiah entering the city to, to again, to, to take over, to, to establish himself as a Messiah. And this, this was a very, um, again, symbolic gesture by them to wave these palm branches because it was an act of worship for them. This was something not just in this moment, but this is something that they did every year as they celebrated the festival of the tabernacles. Again, this was a celebration within their Jewish culture that celebrated God's deliverance um, of the Jews from the Egyptians through the exodus. Again, they would do this, and it was, again, as they waved it as a part of this celebration, it was to, to show, again, the victory that they had through Christ. And so, again, what were they expecting from the Messiah? Right? As the Messiah came, that's what the, the Jews were expecting. They were despect, expecting a deliverance and a victory over the current rulers. Right? They were expecting the Messiah to be a military ruler, to, again, to be just like David, to take over the throne and to rule and, and to bring Israel to the, to the top of the heap once again. Again, who were the, the current rulers of the time? Who were they expecting the Messiah to take over? They were expecting him to conquer the Romans and the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the time. And yet, the Romans and the Pharisees, these were the two uh, authorities who later this week killed Jesus. Again, this was a very different expectation of, of what actually happened in Jesus' life in this week and what they were expecting the Messiah to do. But the palm branches, again, were a symbol of victory. Now, now was Jesus' death and resurrection a victory? Absolutely. Right? I mean, this was still accurate, but yet it was not what they were expecting. Which brings me then to the, this next question, and that is, why does it matter to me? Right? I mean, again, we, we see why Palm Sunday mattered to them, but why does it matter to me today in 2020? Why is it a big deal? Well, and, and again, why it needs to matter to me, I have a couple of things I want to point out as to why it matters to us. And the first one is this, I kind of already mentioned it, is the fact that, that Jesus didn't do what they expected him to do. Again, they were expecting the Messiah to come in and to, to knock off all of the political rulers of the time and just to take over and to, 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 uh, to be this incredible military ruler. And yet, uh, again, that's not what he did. They expected the Messiah to come in and to overthrow the current powers. And the triumphal entry in their minds reinforced that Jesus was the Messiah. And then he goes in and he clears the temple, which, which again probably reinforced those feelings all over again. 
But instead of Jesus conquering those powers, those powers then worked together to kill him a week later. Again, Jesus didn't do what they expected him to do. So again, how does this fact matter to me? Why does it matter to me? Because I can look at, again, how they reacted in that moment and then ask the same questions of myself, of how am I going to react when God doesn't do what I expect him to do? How am I going to react when God doesn't do what I expect him to do? Because the, the honest truth is that that happens all the time. Right now, there are, are two options, right, when we are in this place. Now, again, if you've been walking with Jesus for more than five minutes, this has happened to you, right? You expect God to do something, and then he doesn't do what you expected. And at that moment, we have a choice. Okay, we can either admit that I'm wrong, right, or we can go down and choose that God's wrong. Okay, and those are really the only two options, because when my expectations don't match what God does, either I'm wrong or God is wrong. Now, if I believe that God is wrong, the most common human reaction at that point is to be mad at God, because God didn't do what I needed him to do. Now, if we take that road, if we go down that road, it will lead to bitterness, to, to anger, and to depression. Now again, if we go down that road, it's going to lead us down to that place. Or, or the other kind of option if we go down that road is I'm mad is this, I just deny God completely. I say, okay, God didn't do what, what I thought he should do, so he must not exist. Right? That's truthfully the most convenient thing, which I think is the most common thing that people do when God doesn't do what they expect him to do. They just turn their back on him, say he doesn't exist, or just ignore him completely. But what if I can believe that I'm wrong? Right, what, what if my expectations were the problem? Again, I, if I admit that, I, I, I still have a choice of how I'm going to react to that. I mean, I can still go down the path and to say that, that, again, I'm just going to do what I want to do anyways. Right, God didn't act the way I needed. He didn't come through the way I thought he needed to in that moment or in that situation. So I'm just going to do whatever I want to do anyways. In fact, I've, I've heard this from so many people over the years. Right? They say, I believe that God is real and that his ways are right, but I still want to live my life the way that I want to live my life, and so God's rules just aren't going to apply to me. Now, this attitude is, is very dangerous because it's rooted in pride, and, and, and it's rooted in the fact, again, that, that I know better than God. Or, in this moment when God doesn't act the way I expect him to, I can believe that I am wrong, maybe that my expectations were off somewhere, and trust that God knows better than I do. God might know more than I know. In fact, I, we know that he does. Right? God might see something that I can't see, and, and, and I can just trust that if God is doing something I don't expect, I know that he's doing it out of love because he cares for me and that he wants the best for me and that he might even be protecting me by not doing what I asked him to do or expected him to do. Yeah, we can look at this attitude, as this, this really famous verse, and it's famous because it's so true and it's powerful, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. 
Again, if God is not acting the way I expect him to, maybe that's the best thing for me. I mean, that's what, again, these people were, were faced with even at the triumphal entry. Right? As, as, as the last week of Jesus' life unfolded and they saw it took this weird twist and turn and, and things happened that they didn't expect to happen. In fact, we can just walk with the disciples through the final week of Jesus' life as we're going to do over the next few weeks and see that they were faced with this exact situation and choice. So why does it matter to us? Because we can identify with, with the way that people reacted to not just Palm Sunday, but to this entire week because God didn't act the way they expected him to act. Then the next thing of this, again, why does it matter to me is, is you know, we can realize that the triumphal entry was an act of worship for them. Again, the disciples were there in this procession. They witnessed all this. They witnessed the palm branches, the, again, the donkey, the, the, the praise and the worship of everybody. The, again, the, the, the coats thrown down, you know, all this him entering through, you know, the gate and into the temple area. They witnessed all of that. And, and this triumphal entry was an act of worship. Again, the obedience of the disciples to follow Jesus' instructions, the owner of the donkey to allow them to use it, the people giving their time to welcome Jesus into the city, the offering of their cloaks and the waving of the branches and the shouting praises, their belief in Jesus as the Messiah, these were all significant acts of worship towards God. And so as we realize that fact of this, this day, of this event, then again, the natural question for us is what in my life should be an act of worship that isn't? Right? How should I be worshiping God in my daily life? And even right now, we, we have these traditional ways of worshiping God. Right? And yet now, as, as our, again, our lives have been just suddenly halted in our culture, as we're all told to, to stay in our homes, you know, and, and many of lost jobs or working from home or whatever it might be. Like, again, we have to worship and get the opportunity even to worship God in a whole new way. What in my life should be an act of worship that isn't? A lot of times we go through even these holidays, these rituals, these traditions, the normal habits of our lives that, that should be a big deal and yet they, they turn into something mundane. Again, a great example of this in just normal church Christian life is, is when we take communion. Again, communion should be a significant special act of worship, but yet a lot of times it's lost its reverence. It's lost its meaning because we've just done it so many times and, and we just go through the motions and, and it's, it's lost what it's supposed to do for us. And I just extend this question to you. Is your life just a series of meaningless routines? Again, why do you do what you do on a daily basis? Again, right now, many of our routines have been disrupted. And yet this can be an opportunity to worship God in new ways, right? To, to find his presence in, in points of our life that we either forgot or never knew that he was in in the first place. Because the truth is that anything you do can be an act of worship. Anything you do can be an act of worship. If it is done to bring God glory, then it's an act of worship. Anything you do can be an act of worship. Right? Even going to work, which is, is again, a, a privilege for a lot of people, and we're realizing that. 
right, even in this moment, but even that can be an act of worship, right, even sitting down with your family during this time and, and getting closer to them, right, getting closer to your spouse, right, getting, you know, helping your neighbor. I mean, all of these things can be an act of worship if they are bringing glory to God through my life. What in your life should be an act of worship that isn't? The last thing I want to point out about why this really matters for us this morning is this, is the fact that the entire city of Jerusalem was stirred as he entered. Again, just as the text tells us, as we read this morning out of Matthew, that that Jesus created quite an uproar with this procession on Palm Sunday. He entered the city and, and it just, everybody knew that something was going on. Now, there were three reactions by those in the city, in Jerusalem that day, and the crowd that were surrounding Jesus during his entry. Okay, we, we, kind of, we see these reactions throughout the different versions in the Gospels and in the text. Okay, first of, all, first of all, we know that there were those that turned against Jesus. They saw this procession. They saw you know, the, the connections to the prophecies, and they, they turned against him, which is exactly what the Pharisees and the Romans did. Right? They saw this and they completely rejected Jesus as the Messiah and they turned against him. Okay, the, the second reaction we see is that there were those who were just observing everything. Right? They saw everything happen. They, they saw the processional. They saw you know, everything that Jesus did and, and they knew that something was going on, but yet um, they just ignored it and it didn't affect them at all. They just blew it off. And then there were also those Right, who saw what was happening and their belief was made stronger about Jesus. Right, this is true of the disciples. It's true of those surrounding, even those that were shouting praises. And we see as, again, as the events of the week play out, we see that there were many others that recognized Jesus as the Messiah and that something very significant was happening and that their faith, again, was notched up because of these events. So again, the, the natural question for us then is what reaction do I have when God stirs? Right? What reaction do I have when God's spirit moves? Again, are you skeptical? Are you completely unaffected? Or is your faith strengthened? Again, we see these three reactions all the time today, just like we did to the triumphal entry. Right, people react to Jesus in these exact same ways today. Because God is still stirring. God is still working. God, in fact, wants to make a huge scene in our world and in our culture. And how are we going to react to it? Again, God has done some incredible miracles, even within our own congregation. We heard, again, from Juanita and her story earlier today, right? And how God had just intervened in her and just, and the incredible blessings in her life. And again, her story is not the only one. And we, again, we've seen God work and, and, and transform lives and change hearts. And, and, and again, we've seen this happen, but again, what is our reaction going to be? We saw how Juanita and Ron reacted when God moved. I hope we can follow their example. Yeah, at this time, this, this whole crisis that's going through our culture and our world right now, times are crazy, but yet this is an opportunity. God is at work. He is stirring. His spirit is moving, not just in our church, but in many churches. God is working through this whole experience. 
Again, times right now are different, but can we see the opportunity that we have in front of us? Wait, we have all said, in fact, I've said it all the time. Every, you know, I think about a month ago, people are like, oh, how's life? And I'll be like, you know, life's busy, but it's good. Guess what? Life's not quite so busy anymore, right? Our culture literally has just stopped. We're not so busy now. But that also means we have the opportunity to strengthen our family, to strengthen our marriage, to strengthen our faith through this Easter season. Again, what is your real reaction when God stirs, when God moves? Again, not your pad answer reaction, but what are your actions? What are your attitudes? What is your real reaction when Jesus and God's spirit moves in your life? And in around you, when you recognize that, what's your real reaction? Because we have an opportunity in front of us. Is this Easter season going to look different than every other Easter we've ever experienced? Yes. But the same God accomplished the same miracles. And yet this week has, this holy week, as we studied, as we walked through it together as his church, right? We have the opportunity to have this week change everything for you. What is going to be your choice? And that brings me to my final thought this morning, and that is this. That this Easter season could be a complete loss because of the interruption and, and, and uncertain times. Or it could be an act of worship that strengthens your faith. It's up to you. What are you going to choose? Or what are you going to choose? I hope that you will choose Christ. I hope that you will choose to, to open your life to him, maybe in a way that you never have before. Because that's exactly what this whole Easter season is about. It's about Jesus' death on a cross, the miracle of his resurrection, and the fact that through those experiences, as he takes on our sin, that we can be saved. We can be in a relationship with him. And we cannot have to worry or fear because of what he accomplished on that first Easter. What are you going to choose? You know, maybe you, you've, uh, you've received Christ in your life and you've been walking with him for a while, but yet this whole situation, this Easter season is a wake-up call. Like, man, maybe my priorities were a little off. You know, maybe I, I was distracted by everything going on and I lost my focus on my Lord and my Savior. Right? We have a choice to make this Easter season be way more significant than a, than a pandemic in our world. What are you going to choose? Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to you Lord, and we ask, God, that you would permeate our lives with your spirit. God, that everything that we do can be an act of worship for you. Lord, especially as we celebrate the miracle of Easter, God, that we would not be unaffected by it. God, that we would not reject you. But God, we would truly humble ourselves before you and follow your example of humbling yourself, God, and entering in the city in this way and fulfilling these prophecies, Lord, and becoming, again, our king the king of our heart and our life. And God, I ask that you would truly be the king of our life. Through this Easter season, God, that, that it would be a time that, that we don't just, just lose in the midst of the chaos, but God, it's something that truly affects our lives because you are at work 
and your spirit is, is leading us and transforming our hearts and saving us, God. We love you. We praise you, Lord. Guide us through these next weeks as we worship you, as we study, Lord, and, and walk together through this Easter season. God, as we celebrate the week that changed the world. And God, we want it to change us. We invite you to continue that work. God, show us what we need to see. Lord, help us to trust in your plan for our lives. And God, knowing again that we have nothing to fear because we are loved by you and your perfect love casts out all fear. Thank you, Lord, for our time together today, for the truth of your word. And Lord, continue to guide us through this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for attending service with us today. Again, we'd love to hear from you. Have a great day.